So when I was a kid, I would go occasionally to visit my great-grandparents. We called them Nano and Pop, and they had this old beautiful house in Abilene, Texas, and I loved going around the house exploring. They had stairs. I I couldn't get over stairs, going upstairs in a a house. That was very new to me as a a very young child. The problem was that at Nano and Pop's house, most of the doors were locked when I came to visit. I couldn't access the bedrooms, the closets, because Nano had locked them, which now as an adult, I can totally appreciate what she was thinking. But as a six-year-old, I couldn't, I could not understand why I wasn't allowed in there. And it only left me to wonder what must be behind these doors that would uh, necessitate keeping me out. I mean, what's in there? Is it gold? Is it you know, toys, guns? I mean, if it's, if it's locked, if the door's locked, there must be something phenomenal behind that door if I can't have it. So even as a six-year-old, it was, it was very plain to me that those locks represented some kind of rule, some kind of restriction and boundary, but it was not obvious to me why. I just couldn't conceive of any good reason why I wasn't allowed in to explore every area of the house. And so, you know, I couldn't have spoken it like this as a six-year-old, but it just seemed so arbitrary, so pointless, even punitive. Like, am I being punished for not being allowed in? I know that all of us, uh, certainly as kids, maybe even as adults, we, we run up against laws, rules, restrictions at times, and we, we can't make sense of why they're there or why I'm not allowed in. Austin, at, a, at Texas A&M, are you still not allowed on the grass? Is that still a thing? Have you ever stepped on the grass? Oh, wow, Okay. I have. Um, we took a field trip to Texas A&M junior year of high school. Maybe I, I stepped on that grass. You better believe it. Real quickly and, you know, I mean, I didn't like run out on there, but I touched it. Because um, I didn't like that rule. Didn't seem to make any sense to me. So uh, it's appropriate maybe to bring an illustration like this today because we're talking about the law of God today. And here specifically in Exodus chapter 20, This is the giving of the Ten Commandments, where God from Mount Sinai in all the smoke and flame and thunder declares audibly to his people the ten words, the ten great commands. This is what we're about to read this morning. This is easily the most famous and influential list of rules in human history. Um, It's hard for us to fathom, really impossible, I think, to calculate, just how much of history and society and government and even our own consciences have been shaped by these Ten Commands. And I'd venture to say, if you're, if you're here today or watching today, if you've never set foot in church, not once, if you've never even opened the Bible, your life is still shaped by these Ten Commandments. It's woven into the fabric of who we are. And I say that, I think, that, I think that's a good thing. But it's very important also when we, when we approach the law of God that we recognize always our potential to misread and misapply it. We can always come to something very good, which the law is, it's good, and t- twist it into something not so good or misread or misapply it ourselves. So today I want to make us, I hope, two very big points kind of under the umbrella as we survey the Ten Commandments Two ways of approaching the law of God that we ought to avoid, that would be detrimental to us otherwise. 
And so two points. The first is, it's wrong for us to approach God's law as oppressive. Secondly, it's wrong to approach God's law as redemptive. Okay? God's law does not crush us. It's not meant to. But it also is not meant to save us. And both of those misreadings can cause great harm. And so the truth I hope we see today is something much better. God is not crushing us. He's also not giving us commands in hopes to justify us. There's something better in mind here. And so, y'all, as we enter into Exodus chapter 20, you can actually probably look back on the page just to shade into chapter 19 because God sets the stage in chapter 19 before he gives the law. Listen to what he says because this is so important. 19 verse 4, the Lord says, You yourselves, speaking to Israel, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the Lord has rescued his people from slavery, pure grace and mercy poured out upon them. Well, now having rescued them, he sets forth the terms of his covenant relationship with them. He says, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then Israel will live in the blessings and the benefits of God's covenant promises to them. He will be faithful for certain, will they? That's the command, that's the calling. Well, now here in chapter 20, God lays out the specific nature of obedience. If you'll obey my voice, okay, well then tell us what to do. We'll do it, Israel says. Here it is. Here's what it means to obey me. Chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now there are the first four of the Ten Commands, and we notice something there in the first four. These are all very god Centered. We might call them vertical in nature. The Lord does not begin with, thou shalt not steal. That's coming. That's important. But it's not ultimate. It's not essential. 
in the same way that these first commands are. God begins at the beginning with the fidelity and the worship of our hearts toward him. And y'all, this makes sense because what the scripture teaches and what we, I think we all know intuitively, we all, everything that we are and everything that we do comes from the heart. It flows from the heart as we stand in relationship to God. It's why Martin Luther so many years ago said, all human sin comes from breaking the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. All sin comes from the breaking of the first commandment because when Luther's talking about what we call idolatry, he says it's our love for anything other than God which serves as the root sin that leads to all other sin. Every evil thought and action comes from a disordered love, not loving God and worshiping him as we should. So now let's take a step back though for a second. Let's take a look at the bigger picture. It's obvious right away that God's commands, even just these first four taken exclusively, God is being very particular, isn't he? He's being very restrictive. You shall have no other gods before me, he says. You shall have no idols, nothing that you fashion of any kind, even what you think I might be like. You don't create anything that you could hold in your hands or build and worship or serve other than me. You don't take my name in vain. You keep the Sabbath holy and so on, right? Very restrictive. And we might see even right away why a lot of people take the view that God's law, God's commands are oppressive, right? That God is being so crushing and minute and particular in the things that he tells us to do. And to take my illustration from earlier, it's as if God invites us into his beautiful home only for us to discover every door is locked. And what we thought was a beautiful home to explore ends up being more like a prison. All these wonderful things we could have experienced in our lives, God says you'll have none of it because his law restricts us and keeps us hemmed in and shackled to the floor. You know, there are a great many people who interpret God's law just like that. And you may be one of them. It's possible that you grew up in a home or a church, perhaps, where the law was so strictly communicated. This is what makes or breaks you, your identity, your future, is your ability and your commitment to keep the rules. And that did not feel freeing or joyful or any such spiritual good to you. It felt like spiritual slavery. And maybe you're still there to some degree. And y'all, in that case, I want to bring us back to that first command. That we might see the freedom and the goodness and the joy and you say, well, that first command is, is restrictive, though. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. But, but wait a minute. Go back to verse 2. The Ten Commandments don't start in verse 3. Look at what God says first. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What is Israel's condition as God delivers his law to them? They're free. The people are free because God has made them free. He is their rescuer. 
And it's in that context that he delivers to them his law. Y'all, the whole basis for the commands is, I am your God who saved you. So the story of Exodus is not about how God rescued his people from one form of slavery just so he could bring them into some other form of slavery. No, his commands are designed to preserve this new life of freedom that they have, to grant them a purity and an identity as God's distinct and beloved people. This is how they're going to live in response to who God is and what he's done. One of the great commentators on Exodus, a man named Alec Matir, says this, the people were given the law, not in order that they might become the redeemed. Rather, it was because they had already been redeemed that they were given the law. The law of God is the way of life he sets before those whom he has saved, and they engage in that way of life as a response of love and gratitude to God, their Redeemer. That's the context of the Ten Commandments. Not imprisonment, not slavery, not anything to crush, but to build up, to lift up, to preserve, to purify, to bless. Y'all think about this from our perspective right now. If God, if God has made you in his image and loved you, if he's given you life and breath and all good things, if he's redeemed you by his grace, then every command he gives us should be interpreted through that lens. Everything God says to us by way of command should be interpreted by who God is to us. And that's especially helpful for us when we come to moments like this. Think about something we read. You probably caught it. Verse 5. God says, I'm a jealous God. Man, people have problems with that. There are people who have turned away from Christianity wholesale because of that verse. You might be tempted to read, I'm a jealous God, and you think, wait a minute, what? That's terrible. How could God be like that? Like some petulant 16-year-old boy with his arm around his girlfriend's shoulder refusing to let her out of his sight. Y'all, listen. The word jealous didn't always mean what it means for us. We, we, we interpret jealousy to be purely bad. And in our, in our you know, nomenclature, it is. But that's not what God is communicating here. It's actually something wonderful. God is taking on the role of a faithful husband. He's speaking the language of covenant marriage, where a faithful husband joyfully gives his heart to his bride, and she gives her heart to him, and he will not share her with another man, nor should he. He would never betroth her to another husband. He would not break the bonds of his covenant love and faithfulness. And you know, so what the Lord is communicating to us in his jealousy here is this, y'all belong to me and I will not share you with anything less. I will not give you to be married to anyone other than me. The Lord is not indifferent toward us, as if he couldn't care really how you live. He's passionate. He's zealous. His love and his faithfulness belong to his redeemed people. And so, y'all, when, when God makes commands and speaks of his own jealousy, don't think imprisonment, don't think slavery. 
The point here is this, that when God commands something, that command is good all by itself because God is good. It communicates righteousness all by itself. But it doesn't come independent of our hearts and our lives. God gives commands to people. And he gives them in love because he cares about us. His commands are designed for our purity and for our flourishing, for our good. So even when the law of God restricts, and it does, even when God seems to close doors that we will not be allowed at certain places, well, that happens. It's never to crush us. It's never punitive by design. It's only to bless. It's for our good because he is good and he's good to us. And so that's a big first point, okay? The law of God is not oppressive. But just as importantly, maybe more, point two, the law is also not redemptive. It's not meant to save us. It was never designed for that. Let's, let's take a look at the latter half of the Ten Commandments, the, the latter six now, beginning in verse 12. The Lord says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, these are the commandments we typically know and remember more clearly. These are the ones that if we took a blind test on the Ten Commandments, we'd get at least a few of these, if not those that, uh, that came before them. But one of the reasons we know these commands better is because they're more practical, right? They're more horizontal in nature rather than vertical. And frankly, they feel more doable, don't they? Even if we struggle to know if I'm really, am I really is my heart really inclined to God as, as, as well as it ought to be, the first four commands, that's hard to know. But at least here we feel like, okay, I can check a few of these boxes and feel like I'm doing at least okay. And y'all, you know, understand this. If you were to travel the world to find people of all manner of religion or irreligion, people all over the map, almost everybody in the world would agree with these commands, these latter six, wouldn't they? This is the kind of stuff we should build society on. This is good stuff. Wouldn't it be amazing to live in a world where we actually did this? A world where honor and fidelity and honesty were just the norm. Where, where no one acted with selfishness or greed. Wouldn't that be great? Almost everybody agrees. But the obvious problem is, we do not live in such a world. And y'all, even at a very personal level, even just looking at myself in the mirror, I don't keep the law as I should. And neither do you. And this is an important point for us to, to hone in on. Because if we come to these latter commands, the more horizontal commands, and we say, you know, hey, I'm not perfect, but I've never murdered anybody. I've never committed adultery. You know, I don't... And, and we, you know, we start to kind of fill in some of our own uh, sense of moral goodness. Hey, at least I'm, you know, I'm, I'm two for 10, three for 10. I'm doing okay. But y'all, you're not even that good. <laughs> and let me tell you why. Even if we manage to keep these commandments outwardly, none of us keeps them inwardly. 
And this is Jesus' whole point in the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the book of Matthew. Do yourself a favor. Well, you know, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's a favor to you. But go read Matthew chapter 5, today or later this week, where Jesus actually addresses the sins of murder and adultery, for example. The bigger ones that some of us might say, well, I've never done that. And Jesus actually points to the heart of those commands and shows us that we are still guilty. If you hate your brother in your heart, you're guilty of murder. If you lust for a person in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. And what we come to realize is, We have no confidence in our own ability to keep God's law because Jesus exposes the heart of the law, which when it intersects with the human heart, we find out that our sinful condition before God is absolutely undeniable. We cannot and we will not keep God's perfect commands so as to achieve a righteousness of our own. There is no such person And if we come to recognize God didn't create the law and impose the law for that purpose, then we can begin to see the law for what it's really meant to be. But if you think about from Israel's perspective, here they are at the foot of Mount Sinai, and they say more than once, we'll do everything the Lord commands. They sign off before they even hear him speak. We'll do whatever he says. But y'all, this bears itself out. In the story, it happens in Exodus, of course, but there's hardly a page in the Bible you can turn where you don't see God's people trampling on his law. And not by accident, but with malice. God's people turning their hearts over and over again, failing God's law at each and every turn. They don't keep his word at any point. And again, this, you know, if I, I encourage us at times to read the scripture as if it were a mirror. This is our same story. All of us have sinned against God. We've sinned against others, the vertical and the horizontal. We've broken. We've broken the written law as we read it in the book. And we've also violated our own God-given conscience that he's written in our hearts. All have sinned, the Bible says, and have fallen short of the glory of God. And so if we look to the law as a self-salvation plan, that God has given us these commands so that if I do them, I'll make my way up the ladder to him then not only have we set ourselves up for failure, but we've actually missed God's heart in the process. So when we run up against this insurmountable problem, we can talk all day about how good God's law is. It wasn't designed to crush us or imprison us. It's good. But those who are under the law cannot keep it. And in that case, if we are under the law, then we are under its condemnation. We're under its judgment. Those who fail to keep the law stand condemned. So what hope do we have in that case? Now, y'all, this is very critical. It's something I I did not for years and years. I didn't understand. And I hope I'm beginning to understand now. The answer to our sin problem is not more law. As if we just needed more restrictions and more direction and then we'd find our way to God. The answer is also not less law, as if God could just curtail some of these commands and lower the bar a little bit for us, and then with an easier path, we could save ourselves. No. The answer 
is grace. And it's grace alone. Y'all look with me at at Jeremiah 31. If you're really fast, you can turn there, but you don't have to. We'll put this on the screen here in just a moment. God is going to make a promise in light of the great failure of Israel to keep this law that we've just read. God is going to make a promise of what he calls a new covenant. And this promise is for his people. Listen to these words, Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Now notice the language right there. God, the faithful husband, the jealous husband, which speaks to his goodness, which speaks to his uh, love and commitment to his people. He keeps his end of the covenant. He doesn't violate it at one turn. But Israel has broken covenant. Israel has proven to be the unfaithful, sinful bride, the adulterous wife, as it were. So what's God's next move? What's God going to do? They've broken the covenant he gave them. Listen to how God responds to their sin. Verse 33, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. God makes this same promise of the new covenant also in Ezekiel. There he says he's actually going to put a new heart in us. And he's going to make his very spirit to indwell us. And so it's on this new God-given heart that God is going to write his law in the inner person. It's by the Spirit of God indwelling us that we will come to know God. We'll all know him personally and intimately. And under the terms of this new covenant, all of God's people will have full and eternal forgiveness of sin. Now, I hope it's obvious as we read this language from the mouth of God, that this is all his initiative. This is all his idea, his doing. All of it is grace. There's not a single thing here that God says to the people, here's what you must do to complete the transaction, to earn your way in. I'll do this much if you'll come in and finish the deal. No, it's all of God's grace. It's his initiative. It's his grace poured out. The only question here is, how's he going to do it? How's he going to fulfill the new covenant? And the answer is through his son, Jesus Christ. I want you all to listen to how the apostle Paul ties these threads together as Paul reconciles what it is to be under the law and therefore under condemnation because of our sin, but now what it means to be in Christ by faith. This is Romans 8. Y'all just... Sit back and just bask in this for a moment with me. Romans 8, verse 1. 
Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We have gone from condemnation under the law to no condemnation in Christ. And the key is there in verse 3 as to how God orchestrates this, how he fulfills the terms on our behalf. Look at this. Verse 3, for what the law could not do because of the weakness of our flesh. What could the law not do? The law could not make us righteous. And that might seem strange to us because the law certainly tells us what is righteous. The law tells us what we ought to do to live righteously. But the law was never designed to make us righteous. And that's our whole problem. The law could not save you. And it was never meant to. And so notice here how God fulfills this promise. What the law could not do, Paul says, God did by sending his own son in the flesh. Jesus became as we are and he gave his life as the perfect offering for sin. What's being taught here is this. When Jesus Christ came to the cross, when he died on the cross, he condemned sin in his, fl- in his flesh, in his body. He condemned sin. And you'll think about what this means. If all we have is the law, if, if the beginning and end of our spiritual concern is, here are the commandments we're meant to keep, and if we'll keep them, we'll do well, we'll gain God's acceptance. Y'all, there is no such uh, plan of salvation. And if that's the plan that we take on for ourselves, we'll end up only in condemnation. The law condemns us because of the weakness of our flesh. We're sinners. But you notice what it says about Jesus. The law condemns sinners. Jesus condemns sin. By taking our sin upon himself and suffering the condemnation for us, Jesus comes not to condemn sinners, but to condemn sin by taking the judgment of sin upon himself in our place. And so Paul says, here is the outcome of Jesus dying in our place. It's in verse 4. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We know, I hope by now, that the righteous requirement of God's law cannot be fulfilled by us. We cannot do it. We will not. But in Jesus Christ, God's righteousness has been fulfilled 
in us. That means that Jesus hasn't just taken your sins away. He has given us his very righteousness as now our own standing, our identity. When we stand before God, he sees us as righteous because Jesus took our sinful record upon himself and in its place, he gave us his perfect record. We are now the righteousness of God in Christ. That's why, y'all, we call it the gospel. It's good news. That we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ and not by the works of the law. Now, the lingering question here is this. So what are we supposed to do with God's law today as Christians? Should we still keep the Ten Commandments? That is an awesome topic for next week, all right? Some of y'all were about to start checking your watch when you heard me introduce that one. No, we'll talk about that next week, okay? What I want to do today in these just fleeting moments now that we have left, I want to call us to respond. Y'all, if your plan today is to be a very good person in hopes that if you are good enough, if you keep God's rules, his laws, his commands well enough, then perhaps God will let you skate on in, even just barely, you'll make it. If that's your plan, then I want to tell you this. The law will crush you. It wasn't designed to do it, but that will be the outcome. You will be crushed under the weight of your own sin. And I want to assure you this morning that God has not designed it this way. Not that we would seek the righteousness from the law but the righteousness which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, a righteousness which is given to us by God's free grace. And so I want to call us all this morning, if you have not trusted Christ, that he has fulfilled all righteousness for you, then I want to appeal to you right now to turn away from yourself, to turn away from the commands as your righteousness and to find your, your, your salvation in Jesus. It is in him and him alone that we have the grace of life. However we respond this morning, I want to invite us to sing with all our hearts. God has so, has so loved us. He has not withheld from us the very saving grace that we've all needed as those under the condemnation of sin and law. He has granted us grace in his son. Here in a moment, we're going to respond. And, and uh, if you would like to pray or be prayed for, we'll have pastors standing right there by the doors in the back of the room during this prayer, during the final song. If there's anything at all we can talk with you and pray with you about, come take us by the hand, step out with us. Let us pray with you. But however we respond, let's, uh, let's be encouraged to know that God would, would not leave us to ourselves, that God would not speak the law and then take a step back and just see how we do. He knew how we would fare running up against his righteous standard. And so his plan was never to save us like that. His plan has always been to send his son, the one who would fulfill the law, who would sacrifice himself, and who would rise again to grant us victory over sin and death we might find life in him and him alone and never in ourselves. Let's pray and thank him for that.
Father, our heart this morning, I pray, I hope, that we would not approach your law as something uh, like slavery, that we would not misjudge your heart in any good thing you command of us. Lord, I pray, help us to see that, that always, even in Exodus, Lord, where we, we just, we're maybe less prone to consider this, always your heart is redemptive. Always your heart is an outpouring of your love and mercy. Lord, you never designed a relationship with us to be one of crushing burden or imprisonment. Lord, you are good. And I do pray this morning that it would be our heart, sincerely, to obey you. Knowing, Lord, that your commandments to us are not burdensome. That your desire is for our good, our flourishing, our Christ-likeness. But Lord, we also pray that, that uh, there'd be no sense in us in which we see your commands as our salvation. We cannot achieve a righteousness of our own. And so give us, Lord, this ter just ter terrific encouragement together as your church today. I'm always saying this. I've got to say this to myself constantly. Look away from me and look instead to Christ. His blood shed on the cross. His glorious resurrection. His grace poured out for sinners. His gift of righteousness. Father, help us this morning. Um, give us the grace we need to see Jesus Christ as our only hope and our true, um, lasting, eternal righteousness. Father, it's in Him. And if our faith is in Him this morning, Lord, then right where we sit, we have no condemnation, none. There is not a charge against us that will stand because we are in Jesus. Father, let this faith um, so grow in us that it dominates every other affection, every other temptation. Let us set no other gods, no other loves, no other ambitions before you. Father, give us, give us a heart to, together this morning that loves you supremely, especially, Lord, in light of the, the lavish way that we have seen you have loved us in Christ. And it's in his great name we ask these things. Amen.